coming here to Bigger Kirk. We are delighted that you are here, and as we spend time together, it's my prayer that you would know God's blessing, that you would feel his touch, and that you would hear his voice above every other voice, even my own. Let's begin our worship with a few words from the psalm. Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. If you're new with us, please do get in touch so that we can make you feel at home and help you with whatever needs that you might have. You can find my contact details on the description of the video if you're watching at home, and others can find it on the email that we send out every week, or you can get my number and my email address on the board outside as you leave the church. We gather together to worship God, and our first hymn is the hymn, As We Are Gathered. Let's stand as we come before God. approach God in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we come together from the places where we have been scattered, places where we have been trying to reflect your light and share your bread with others. We come, some of us having succeeded at that task in miraculous ways. We come, some of us, having failed miserably this week. And we come, most of us, having a mixture of both success and failure and walking the way that you have called us to. But we come. We come here together because we belong to you. We come because you welcome us, whether we have failed or succeeded. <laughs> 
And we come because you have called us together to be your family. To find forgiveness, to find refreshment, and to find renewed energy and vision for the way ahead. Jesus, stand among us. Stand among us now in your risen power. By your spirit working within and through us, do what you will with us this morning and in the week ahead. As we rely on you, make us a people ready for whatever the next step in this road requires. And as we approach you, Lord, we pray the prayer that you taught all those who would follow you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I have some folks I want to introduce you to. Derek and Julie, could you come to the lectern, please? The Kirk Session decided a few months back that we needed to create a new post here in Bigger Kirk. And at this time in our church's journey, we need someone to help look after our buildings and to do a certain amount of administrative work. So Session appointed a group of four people for us to work on putting together a job description and recruiting someone. We interviewed some really qualified candidates and we decided on the best for our needs. So today, at the end of that process that we've been through, I'm pleased to introduce you to Derek Myers and Julie. Derek will be joining our Bigger Kirk team as our administrator and property manager. Derek and Julie, together with Julie's dad, Ray, moved to Bigger from the Isle of Man back in October 2019. They've been regular attenders here at our church, and when lockdown is over, hopefully it will be over soon, they plan to join us as member, members. We're waiting on that time so that we can shake their hands. Yeah, we live in strange times, don't we? They have one grown daughter whose name is Victoria, and Victoria is married to Gary, and they live in Pennycook, so not too far away. Please, folks, can you make Derek and Julie welcome as he takes on this new role, and they work together as a team on this. You will find in that uh, email, the email newsletter that we send out every week, Derek's uh, new phone number and his email address. So please do send him a text or even phone him, uh, drop him an email saying welcome to our church family here in Bigger. Before Derek reads God's word for us, I'd like to pray for both Derek and Julie. Lord God, thank you for bringing people into our midst. 
Thank you for Derek and Julie. Thank you for the skills that they have, the experiences they have of you in their lives. And Lord, we pray that you would use them mightily amongst us. Lord, use them to work with us to bring about your kingdom in this place as we pray together and as we work together. Bless them. Bless especially Derek in this endeavor that he's taking on. Bless them and Victoria and Gary as a family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Derek, please. Mike, thank you for that uh, kind introduction. I'd just like to say that uh, I consider it a, a privilege and a pleasure to have been appointed to this particular position. And I look forward to working with you and the team here at the church and also St. Mary's Hall and the Gillespie Centre. And sadly, because of the pandemic, we haven't had the opportunity of meeting many of the congregation, but now things are hopefully coming back to normal. We look forward to meeting you all. Please introduce yourselves and I won't be shy coming forward myself. So thank you for that kind introduction. <clears throat> uh, this morning's reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 52 from verse 13 and chapter 53 to verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they were not told, for what they were not told, they will see, and for what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are, we are healed. We are all like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, 
he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. This is the time when we would address the children if there were any in the congregation. I know there are some watching at home. So I'll pretend that there are children here. We're all children at heart, aren't we? But uh, I, I know that there are some of our young people watching at home. I wonder, folks, did you know that there's an election coming up here in Scotland? It's uh, really not very easy to uh, miss that. Um, it's really important to elect our members of Scottish Parliament. And it's really important that we vote for the best people to guide our country, which we'll be doing this coming Thursday. But I wonder if you've ever noticed how politicians around the time of elections behave. They like to say that the other party have got it all wrong and they are the ones who have all the answers and will do the best job. They want to convince people that they are good and the other people that you might choose instead are bad. That's nothing new. People have done that same thing from the beginning of time. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden when Adam, Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit in the garden? Well, Adam blamed Eve because she gave him that fruit and Eve blamed the serpent since he convinced her to pick the fruit. They tried to put the blame onto someone else. They tried to say that someone else was worse than they were. We like to blame other people when things go wrong. And we like to think that we are better than others. That seems to be what human beings do from the beginning of time. But the Bible cuts right through all those kinds of arguments about who is better than who. You know what the Bible says? Well, it says it right there in the middle of the passage that Derek read for us. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. What the prophet Isaiah means is that we are all wrong. We've all gone astray. That means we're like naughty sheep who have got lost. We've wandered away from the place where God, our shepherd, wants us to be. We've wandered away from the place where he can keep us safe. And Isaiah also says each of us has turned to our own way. Here the prophet is saying 
that we can't blame other people all the time for what's going wrong. Each of us needs to be responsible for the sin that we commit. In a way, the Bible here clears up the argument about who is right and who is wrong. It says we are all wrong. But that's not the end of the story. Isaiah also says that even though we're all wrong, we can all be right with God. God will forgive us our sin because someone else has taken the punishment for our sin. Someone else has taken the punishment on our behalf. And who is it that took the punishment for our sin? Why, of course, it was Jesus. Even though all of us have sinned and strayed from God's ways, Jesus on the cross died so that we can be forgiven for our sins. Let's remember that in all our dealings with people. We've all gone astray like sheep. But because God loves us in Jesus, God has forgiven us. And when that happens, when we know that we are forgiven, we can forgive others. No matter how many times they mess up, no matter how much they annoy us, we can forgive. As we prepare to reflect on God's word, let's listen to a hymn, the hymn, As the Deer Pants for Water. And you can remain seated through this.
Am I still on? Yeah, good. <laughs> Let's pray as we turn to reflect on God's word. <clears throat> Lord God, we do long for you. And we ask you now to open our eyes that we might see you. Open our ears that we might hear you speaking. And open our hearts that we might worship and live for you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> our passage of scripture that Derek read for us this morning comes from the Old Testament. It's a passage that spans the time from when the people of Judah were both returning and had already returned from exile in Babylon in the 7th century BC, 700 years before Christ. This passage is a prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah. And although it might be hard to see in the English language, this passage is written as a poem as is most of the book of Isaiah. Not only is it beautiful poetry that has inspired many songs through the ages from parts of Handel's Messiah down to modern worship songs, but it, it's also a passage that encapsulates the message of the gospel like no other passage in Scripture, either in the Old Testament or the New it's a passage like this that I believe is behind the reason that Jesus encouraged his followers in the Gospels to seek him out in the Old Testament, to find him in the pages of their Old Testaments, which at that time was the only Bible that they had. Before we dive into this passage, let me show you something that... I've only just recently become aware of. Now bear in mind that the divisions in the Bible of chapter and verse come very late in history. So please don't invest too much in this. But it is amazing. And I think you will agree after you've seen it. Do you have a Bible with you? If you don't, when you get home, could you go and open the book, open your Bibles to Isaiah. Open to the front chapter, okay, that's chapter one, and then all the way to the end. And how many chapters are there in Isaiah? Well, there are 66 chapters in Isaiah. And do you recall from Sunday school how many books of the Bible there are? There are 66 books in the Bible. That's an interesting coincidence. Now, it's very common amongst scholars to divide Isaiah into two parts. And that's not just arbitrary. Each part, each of these two parts in Isaiah refers to a very distinct time in the life of God's people. So the first part, chapters 1 to 39, 
refers mostly to the time before the people of God have gone into exile in Assyria and Babylon. And that first part is full of woe and judgment, though there are some amazing shining passages of hope in that first part of Isaiah. But the second part of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, on the other hand, refers to the time when the exiles are about to return or have returned from exile. And that part of the book of Isaiah is full of hope with a message of ultimate salvation. So do you remember how many books there are in the Old Testament? 39. And how many books are there in the New Testament to make up those 66? There are 27. So the first part of Isaiah, there are 39 books. And the second part of Isaiah, there are 27. <laughs> Quite a coincidence. Now, half of 27 is what? Well, it doesn't divide into half, does it? Because it's an odd number. But the center of 27 is 14. The 14th chapter of the second half of Isaiah is the 53rd chapter of the whole book, the one that we're looking at this morning. So here we have one of the most important chapters in the Bible at the center of the second half of the book of Isaiah. I don't think that's just a coincidence, but it could be. We're looking at the final three verses of chapter 52 as well as the whole of chapter 53. And the whole of this section that Derek read for us is, is known as a servant song. There are four such servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And this one is the last and the most climactic one. The verses in chapter 52 serve as an introduction a declaration by God, something, summing up what is to follow in the servant song in chapter 53. And since the time of writing of the book of Isaiah, the identity of that servant in the servant songs has perplexed people and Jewish scholars. That perplexity about who this servant is is actually reflected in our passage. Who is the servant referred to so often in the book of Isaiah? In verse 1 of chapter 53, the prophet asks, who has believed the message about this enigmatic person, the servant? Verses 2 and 3 show how the servant was kept from being recognized. It says he, he grows up like a tiny tender shoot in the dry ground. Now, gardeners among you can testify that dry ground isn't a great place for a plant to start. The point that the prophet is making is that surely, surely God's servant Surely God's arm or God coming amongst his people would have been obvious. 
He would be majestic and beautiful. God coming amongst us would be triumphant. God coming amongst us would be impervious to the ills that plague ordinary human beings. God coming amongst us wouldn't look like just an ordinary person. But this servant, this servant that comes amongst us, this arm of God being revealed is just like an ordinary person here in Isaiah. And furthermore, in his appearing, he suffers, and he suffers greatly. He is a man of suffering and familiar with pain, or as it has in the King James Version, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The servant, because of his pain and suffering, looks even less like a human being than others do. His appearance is disfigured beyond any human being, it says in 52.14, and his form is marred beyond any human likeness. Because of the pain inflicted on this servant, he becomes one from whom people hide their faces. It's a bit like people coming across a disabled beggar in the street. People don't want to look at him. It's perhaps because they're ashamed for not helping him or just because they don't want to feel uncomfortable at the sight of him. In verses 4 to 6, the prophet gives us the reason why the servant came in the way he came and suffered the way he did. He suffers, verse 4 and 5 says, not as people who see him might initially assumed as a punishment by God for his own sins, but the servant suffers because of the sins of the prophet and his people. By his suffering, the prophet and his people are healed and given peace, says Isaiah. And verse 6 is the middle of chapter 53. Verse 6 is the middle of the central chapter of this message of hope in the second half of the book of Isaiah. And verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here in the center of this chapter is a declaration of the guilt of the prophet and the people he represents. Here is an acknowledgement that they should receive punishment for going astray together and turning to their own way individually. But instead of them receiving their just punishment from God, the servant himself receives the punishment. Verses 7 to 9 take us even further on into the biographical story of this servant. Not only is he punished, but he receives the ultimate punishment. In verse 8 it says, he was cut off from the land of the living. 
he is killed. And not, we are reminded, because of his own sins, but for the transgressions of my people. That, however, is not the end of the story. In verse 10, it says that he, the servant, will see his offspring and that in his hand, the Lord's will will prosper. How can this be if he's dead? How can a dead man see his offspring? How will anything prosper in the hands of a dead man? Isn't that what a lot of folk regret with the prospect of death? Not being able to see children and grandchildren being born and growing. On the point of death, don't people regret not doing all that they set out to do, not having God's will prosper in their lives? But here the servant who dies is promised both, both to see his offspring and to have God's will prosper in his hands. How can that be? Well, everything becomes clear in verse 11. It says, he, the servant, will see the light of life, meaning that he will return to life. He comes back from the dead. And so he will see his offspring, and God's will will continue to prosper in his hands. Who is this servant? Well, who else could this servant be but the Lord Jesus Christ? Think about it. Jesus did not appear as the Messiah his people had hoped for. If Jesus was the arm of the Lord, if Jesus was God among them, and Jesus did not appear as anyone would have expected him to. In all outward appearances, Jesus was just a man. And when he was arrested and beaten and hung on a cross, his appearance took on a disgusting visage. No one wanted to look at him. It was assumed that a criminal on a cross got what he deserved and it was shameful to the people at that time. He died there between two thieves, assigned to die, assigned a grave with the wicked, like Isaiah says, though he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Also, as Isaiah says, the tomb of his friend Joseph of Arimathea. We know that Jesus, like this servant, did all that he did so that people would be healed. He did all that he did so that we might be justified and at peace before a holy God. And there are so many other things in this servant's song that correspond exactly to the accounts of Jesus' life that we see in the New Testament. 
So that's the identity of the servant. Although Jesus never quotes directly from this passage, Jesus was surely thinking of this passage when he did what he did, taught what he taught, died a death that he died, and rose like he rose again. Things predicted here in this passage, even those things beyond Jesus' control, all come to pass in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus and the message of his atoning death and resurrection are clear here in this passage, which was written hundreds of years before he even walked the earth. Who is this servant? Well, that is certainly one question with hindsight that we can answer about this passage. But there are still loads of other questions that I'm sure that you have when you read through this passage. I certainly have loads of them. I certainly appreciate meeting with a group of you to study and to ask questions about passages we will be looking at on Sunday morning. I always come away from sessions like that with new insight and new questions about passages. This last Tuesday night when a group of us looked together at this passage at Isaiah 53, two questions stuck with me <clears throat> that I had to go away and think about and pray about and read some books in order to find the answer. <clears throat> These two questions were, if this is a prophecy, a prophecy predicting the future, why is much of it written in past tense? That's something that I didn't see before. Someone in our group identified that. Why is it written as if these events have already happened? And the second question that someone came up with was, what's with the pronouns here in this passage? Why does the writer keep referring to us and we, our and ours? Who is the us and we in this passage? Again, a question that never came to my mind, but a friend had this question. Well, I went away and thought about it and prayed about it and looked at some books. And this is what I've come up with. You know, the writer of 1 Peter tells us what was going on with the prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah here in our passage. And I think Peter gives us a clue to help us answer our two questions that we had. Peter says, the prophets who spoke of the grace, the prophets like Isaiah, who spoke of the grace that was to come to us, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And it was revealed to them, to folk like Isaiah, that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you 
by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. God revealed to the prophets, according to Peter, that they were serving not themselves, not even their own generation, but they were serving us. What they were writing about was about us. They were writing about us who live after the historical events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We are the ones to whom this message has been fully revealed. We are the us. And this is talking about our. Peter answers Isaiah's question in verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The answer is clearly you and me. We're the ones, according to Peter, who have had the gospel unveiled for us, revealed to us, preached to us by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What is happening here in Isaiah 53, I believe, is that by the inspiration of God, Isaiah is transported in time. Not literally, like in Back to the Future. But Isaiah is transported in time in his mind's eye. He is transported to stand by our side and say these beautiful words that point to the cross and the resurrection that for us has happened already. All of God's faithful people before and after the time of Christ, even the great prophet Isaiah himself, must say these words as things that pertain to them personally. Because the cross of Christ, the event of Jesus dying and rising again, is the center of history. It's the point on which everything else either stands or falls. And we are called, each and every one of us, to go to Calvary as an individual to go there, to put ourselves there at the foot of the cross in repentance for our sins and in thanksgiving for all that God has done in sending Christ to die for us. Our calling as human beings is to put ourselves into Isaiah's song here. It is the center of what it's all about. We're called to sing this song and to say, Mike was the one who did not recognize him. Mike was the one who, by his disregard for him, despised him. It was my sin that he bore on the cross. He was pierced for my transgressions, not someone else, not that politician that I despise, 
He was crushed for my iniquities. I was the sheep that went astray. I am the one of many for whom he intercedes that I might be forgiven. It was for me that he bore the punishment that brought me peace. And it is by his stripes that I can be healed. That must be our song. And as we share in the guilt, we also share in the forgiveness and the healing. And we go on to new life. Isaiah predicted the sufferings, but he also predicted the glories, according to Peter. We live in the glory days. As we come daily to the cross, In thankfulness for all that God has done for us. We can move on to new life, to resurrection life. Live into the resurrection as the Easter people of Jesus. As we listen reflectively to our next hymn, let's each of us put ourselves into Isaiah's song. Let's let God lead us to Calvary. Let's listen.
we've not been able to take up an offering as we normally would. We still acknowledge that giving to support our church and giving in general um, is still very much a part of our worship as the people of God. Faithful members of this church are still giving, albeit in different ways than we usually give. So let's dedicate our offering and all that we give to God. Let's pray. Lord, you have given everything for us. We are yours. We ask you to take not just our offerings of money, but you, we ask you now to take all that we are and all that we have use all that we are and all that we have for your kingdom purposes. Lord, we and our world need you. We need your guidance in the narrow winding paths that we all walk. We need your forgiveness for the messes we have made and for the sins that we have committed. We need your supernatural intervention in intractable situations in which we find ourselves. And so we bring before you the needs of our world and our own particular needs this morning. We pray for our nation as we go to the polls this Thursday. Guide us all as we make this important decision. And Lord, guide the leaders we elect that they might seek the common good, follow your will and your ways in all that they do. We continue to pray for the nation and the people of India reeling as they are from this present wave of coronavirus. We pray for people suffering there, those in hospital with COVID-19, those sick at home, those suddenly bereaved. We pray for physicians, nurses, and key workers laboring every waking moment under impossible conditions. Thank you, Lord, that you promised to give strength to the weary and increase the power of the weak, and we pray that you would do that for these folk just now. We pray, pray for politicians in India overseeing the rollout of the vaccine, trying to support hospitals, businesses, and hold the nation together. We pray for pastors and priests and all your people in that country seeking to get through this crisis, facing unprecedented challenges but also facing unprecedented opportunities to proclaim your hope 
and to live your love in that situation. And this morning as we reflect on the agony of the cross and the triumph of your resurrection, so clearly foretold by the prophets through, though the reality is kept from them until the time was right. We pray for friends and family members who still have not seen or acknowledged your love for them. And we name them in the silence now. Lord, open their eyes. Use us to speak a word or demonstrate by our actions something that will tip the balance that they might believe and come to new life in you. Lord, help us to remain hopeful. Help us to remain sensitive. We pray these prayers in the name of the one who bore our iniquities, by whose stripes we are healed, the one who has given us his peace even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn, we will recognize the tune. It's the tune, Abide With Me, but it's got new words that are powerful. It's a, a new song that's been written by the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity and uh, the organization Thy Kingdom Come. Let's listen, let's make this our anthem as we go from this place. Let's stand.
I can see us out on bigger high street singing that song. <laughs> Let's receive God's blessing. Brothers and sisters for whom Christ died and was raised, go from this place with grateful hearts for all that God has done for you. Go in grace to love and serve the Lord and all his people. And the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest and remain with us all evermore. Amen.